Dave issued a challenge to us last week around hospitality, and his cha- can anyone remember what his challenge was from last week? Stuart can. To invite someone into hospitality who won't invite you back. Now, here's an even harder question. Has anyone done it? See, I had, I had a little sneaking feeling it might be a little bit like that. Oh, Chris may have done. You have, have you? Yeah. Well, we may have done by lunchtime because I don't know when we'll see each other again. But, um, uh, okay, so I thought rather than giving another hospitality challenge to confuse people, I'd give the same one again because it seemed like a really good one. And I haven't got a story like Dave's from last week of offering hospitality to people who just burgled our house. But um, it's still his challenge. So can I encourage you that when these sorts of challenges are given, they're not just for interest, but they're really a call to obedience. It's it's a prompt to us. This is the kind of stuff that Jesus commands us to do. So let's do it. And it would be great um, if a few more of us saw a way to do that in the next week or two. Okay, great. So I'm not going to offer a new challenge. I'm going to offer a few challenges out of the passage this morning, but none particularly to do with hospitality. Okay, chapter 16 of Luke's gospel. You might ask, why are we in chapter 16 when we're finishing off the gospel? Well, we didn't quite do it in order, and we saved up some of the parables for the end. Chapter 16 as a whole is actually all about money. It's all about money. Uh, After the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, which Dave spoke about last week, which is a story really about the father and his extraordinary generosity, the Pharisees who were present weren't impressed. We can imagine them saying, well, that's all very well, this generosity, but think of all the money that got wasted. Maybe as much as half of the estate got wasted in that story. A little bit hard to celebrate. They weren't impressed. And we know this because in chapter 16, after Jesus has told actually another parable about money, which is often entitled the parable of the shrewd manager, it says this in verse 14, the Pharisees who loved money heard all of this and were sneering. At Jesus. They were not impressed. And Jesus responds by going on to tell another parable about wealth. This one's entitled The Rich Man and Lazarus. Lazarus being the only person in Jesus' parables to get a personal name. It's usually you know, the lost son. Lazarus gets his name mentioned. And we're going to read together from verse 19 to the end of the chapter. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen. Um, That statement, purple and fine linen, that's like the ultimate in luxury for the day. Fine linen was very expensive. Purple, you know, there's this thing with the shellfish and the dye, and you had to dive down and get it very expensive. So he was wearing the designer labels of his day, the ultimate in luxury for his day. A rich man dressed in purple and fine linen, and he lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. 
Now, the time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, or Hades, as the Greek says, in Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. and Send Lazarus to dip the tongue of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he's comforted here and you're in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you can't, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, the rich man answered, then I, I beg you, father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, no, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they'll repent. And he said to them, If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets... They won't be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. There's a bit of a story, hey? Purple and fine linen, a rich man with the ultimate of luxury, the gate at which Lazarus is laid. The Greek word there implies a big gate, a grand house, a rich man who had more than enough. Evidently so much that food fell from his table, an example of food wastage uh, in the ancient world. He was just acting, this rich man was just acting normally for his social class, but he didn't do what he could have done. He could have given the spare food to his servant to take to Lazarus at the gate. Instead, any spare food went to the dogs, and the dogs then went to Lazarus at the gate and licked his oozing wounds. When the two men died, Lazarus had no one to bury him, so he would most probably have been left as carrion for scavenging animals, most likely the dogs that had already surrounded him in life, also surrounded him in death. A really rich man and a really poor man. Both go to Hades, in fact. But in Hades, they find they are on different sides of a chasm there. That's the story. So what can we learn from it? Well, first of all, um, one thing that's really very clear is that there is a weighing that takes place after death. There is a weighing that takes place after death. There is judgment after death. On the one side, we have Abraham. Abraham indicates the place for the righteous. 
And there Lazarus lies, reclining, resting with Abraham in Abraham's bosom, accepted amongst the righteous. Of course, Abraham was not a perfect man. He twice prostituted his wife for his own safety. He wasn't an entirely righteous man in his behavior, but the scriptures tell us that his trust in God was credited to him as righteousness, such that he was accepted, sinner though he was, into friendship with God. And he there in the place of the righteous, the place that Lazarus can go. On the other side of the chasm, there's fire and torment. Now, I nearly went down the little rabbit hole of discussing the geography of the afterlife. The nature of Hades and Sheol and hell and Gehenna and heaven and paradise and where the chasm lies, and I decided not to. Um, Because we could spend a long time on that. Um, What is clear is that there is judgment after death and that the outcome of that judgment is fixed at the point we die. We don't know all that led to this rich man's judgment. We know that he neglected his poor neighbor, Lazarus. And we also know that even torment didn't seem to soften his arrogance. Because like the rock star he'd been on earth, he seemed to expect special treatment even in hell. Not able to reconcile himself to simply being tormented, he starts asking Father Abraham to do, what do you do with the beggar at your gate? You command them, if anything. It's all they're good for. He's tormented in hell and still trying to get uh, orders issued to Lazarus. Still. Not softened by his punishment. Deep-seated arrogance in the man. That much we know. What else he may have been judged for, we don't know. This much is clear, that after death there is judgment and the outcome is fixed when we die. There is a weighing that takes place. And try as he might, the rich man, he couldn't change it. Question, do people sometimes pray to the Lord in their dying moments and receive salvation without anyone else knowing about it yeah of course they do but it happens all the time because God's merciful doesn't change the fact that for all of us there is judgment after death and the outcome of that judgment is fixed at the point that we die once we die There will be a division in the afterlife between those who deserve judgment and those who deserve judgment, but who have repented and found forgiveness. I was going to move on reasonably quickly at this point. Al McNichol came up to me during the worship and said, I felt God had really spoken to him this morning that there were people who need to sit up and take notice of the fact that there's judgment after death. And my application to this is, get ready. Since there will be a weighing, it would be wise to be ready for it. And I could do a whole thing about, you know, you might get run over by a bus on the way home and 
try to make it feel even more urgent to you. Um, I hope it's obvious. If, if something is stirring in you already of an awareness of God and you're beginning to wonder, should I pursue this? Are there things I should really take seriously in repenting of them? Should I really seek forgiveness? Should I go for this Christian thing? Um, what this teaching should do is prompt you to take that really seriously, not to have it on the side or on the back burner for maybe some future point in life when you've got a bit more time. The time for working it through is now. Now is the best time. And my counsel to you, and actually the counsel of Jesus at various points in the Gospels is very straightforwardly, get ready, be ready. You can live with confident assurance that you have been forgiven, that you are accepted. And actually, like I know most of the people here have a confidence that you, when you die, will go to be with the Lord Jesus. Not just with Abraham, <laughs> in Abraham's bosom, but with the Lord Jesus in the abode of the righteous. And uh, if those words that I've just spoken are landing for you, oh, you know what, I, yeah, I need to do something about that. Please, please, um, come, if you're here with a Christian friend, then talk it through with them. They will have some idea. Well, actually, even if they don't quite know what to do, they'll know who else to talk to. And uh, if you don't know who else to talk to, come and talk to me. I'd be delighted to help you think about what next steps you can take. That's the first thing that's really, really clear. There will be a weighing. Judgment after death, the outcome being fixed at the point you die. And... Uh, the appropriate response from us is to get ready. Here's the next thing that I'd like to draw out very simply this morning. It's to do with the emphasis on the word. This may not have jumped out to you as you read through it, but the phrase Moses and the prophets is a reference for the Jews who were listening to their scriptures that they had written down at that time. And Abraham here in the parable says very clearly, if the scriptures don't do it for you, then no number of miracles, no, no, it doesn't say no number of miracles, but even the most astonishing miracle, which is for someone to come back from the dead, even that won't do. And don't we see that in the Gospels? Because there is someone in the Gospels who dies very publicly and who comes back from the dead and who wanders around, who is seen by hundreds of people. An astonishing miracle, the whole of creation joined in with thunderclouds over his death and earthquakes at his resurrection. And yet the people who'd had hard hearts, who were closed to Jesus' word when he was teaching, remained closed. Now this is not to belittle the value of miracles. I suppose it prompts us to, to realize that God doesn't do miracles for show. God does miracles because he loves people. When we pray for people to be healed, it's not so that we'll have a trophy that we can parade. Here's the person that's come out of their wheelchair. Everybody, look. It's because God loves that. If that person's healed, it's because God loves them. And if we pray for people, or we pray for miracles, 
It's not so that we'll have a story to tell. It's not so that our own faith will get a little bit of an extra support and buttress because we've got a story to tell. But because people are, in, people are suffering. And out of compassion, Jesus healed people. Out of compassion, Jesus did miracles. God doesn't do miracles to impress, but out of love. And it's his word that he uses to change people. See, it's even after, even after Jesus rose from the dead, the story of the disciples on the road to Emmaus, they've got the risen Lord Jesus walking with them. Personal time with the risen Lord Jesus, the one who's died and there's been thunderclouds and earthquakes and the whole city's in turmoil and the risen Lord. He, Revelation 1, I read at the start of the service, this one, people see him and fall down dead when they see him. This Jesus, they walk with him, they chat with him. When he opens the scriptures, their hearts burn within them. Am I quoting this right? He explains stuff to them, and that's what what gives them revelation. He goes through the scriptures explaining about the question. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And it's through the scriptures, even then, that they're changed. Think of the Ethiopian eunuch who sat puzzling, trying to make sense of Isaiah on the road home. And Philip is sent out into the desert by the Holy Spirit and sits and works through the scriptures with him. And I wonder sometimes whether in the more Pentecostal and charismatic traditions, we place so much hope on, oh, if only God would turn up and do a miracle for my friend, then that would sensitize them to the gospel and then we could talk about Jesus. When in actual fact, there's power in the word of God. Um, I wonder whether we could do with applying that more even in our own lives. And we're asking God to do things for us, but do we open our Bibles and read them? I'm going to embarrass Bev, because I don't do it very often. But um, in the last couple of years, and she never, she, you can embarrass me back when you start preaching. Is that right? It's not that embarrassing, really. It's just that in the last few years, quite a lot of people have commented on just how much more authority and uh, spiritual life Bev carries. What you might or might not know is that what the, the source of that was a determination to read through the whole Bible and to sit down every day, open a bit, read the next bit. And it was probably about a year of doing that before people started going, oh, look, there's something a bit different here. There's power in the word of God that changes us. And if the power that's in the word of God isn't enough for us, then Lord help us. Well, actually, it says here, that's all you're getting. Because it's enough for you. The rich man, it seems, wasn't in torment in Hades just because he was rich, far from it, but because he didn't avail himself of the scriptures that were available to him. So let's not make the same mistake. First thing was, there's going to be a weighing, so get ready. I bet you can guess what comes next. The word of God, get reading. There we go. It's good. It's good stuff. I'm a proper preacher. So 
Word of God, get reading. Here's the last thing. It's another W, really proper preacher, wealth. This parable is clearly about wealth. Jesus said, don't store up treasures on earth. Wealth, wealth is a good thing. Let's be clear about that. Wealth is a blessing from God. Uh, but it also has a peculiar power to deceive us. Wealth can be deceiving. Because whilst wealth is indeed a blessing from God, it's easy to assume that wealthy people are loved by God and for poorer people to doubt their value, to get confused about what the wealth means. And what we see with this rich man was that he chose to be satisfied with his material stuff. He had a lot of stuff, a bit like the guy in the picture here, a lot of stuff, and he chose to be absorbed in it. He chose to be satisfied with it, and just as all this stuff had somehow been given to him, he somehow gave himself to it. He allowed it to take his heart, and it consumed him. He became entangled with it, bound up with it, and whilst all of that stuff was a blessing and a reward for him in this life, when he died, it turned out he wasn't invested in anything else. He wasn't invested in anything eternal. He was bound up with something that was never going to last. And that's not just his story. But if we look around the globe, it's often the wealthiest people, not the most educated necessarily, but the wealthiest people who are furthest from faith, who are most self-sufficient, and with that, proud, and not given to prayer and turning towards God. There's a proverb in the book of Proverbs, chapter 30, and it says this, two things I ask of you, O Lord. Don't refuse me before I die. Here's the first one. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. It's a good prayer. Here's the other one. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Interesting prayer. Give me neither poverty nor riches. And then there's an explanation as to why. It says, actually, he goes on to say, give me only my daily bread. It's interesting. The writer of the proverb here, his view of the middle place to be is not owning your own home and your own car and, you know, <laughs> that kind of existence that we might think is maybe somewhere in the middle. <laughs> His middle is hand-to-mouth daily bread. It's a bit of perspective for us. But he explains why both poverty and riches would be a problem to him. He says, otherwise... Wait, I'll read the second one first. It says, if I become poor, I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. So I don't want to be poor. <laughs> it's a temptation to criminality in poverty. Don't want that. Or I may have too much and disown you and say, who's the Lord? I don't want that temptation either. I don't want to have so much stuff 
that it might tempt me to disown God. Wealth is a blessing. It's got a peculiar power to deceive us and to distract us and to convince us that it's enough for us to have stuff when it's not enough for us to have stuff. Jesus spoke the truth when in his temptation he quoted the book of Deuteronomy where it says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Material stuff's good, it's not enough. It's not enough. We can't live on bread alone. We also need what comes from God's mouth to come into our mouths. It's a strong image. What comes out of God's mouth as his word is our bread that sustains us. What comes out of God's mouth has to come into our mouths if we are going to truly live. And the more stuff you have, the more gifted you are, the harder it is to see that. The easier it is to be satisfied with the stuff that we have and to forget this other need for the word of God and the life of God. The church in Laodicea made this mistake. Going back to the book of Revelation where I started the meeting this morning, but in chapter 3, there's a letter to the church in Laodicea. And from verse 17, it says this letter written to the church. You say, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth and I don't need a thing. <laughs> How silly. To think that because you've got wealth, you don't need anything. It's not going to last. There's an eternity to be concerned about. But they said, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, and don't need a thing. This is the word of God to them. But you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. just can't see it. I counsel you to buy from me, from the Lord, gold refined in the fire so that you may become rich. We need God's riches. And white clothes to wear, those rich clothes that the rich man in our parable had, fine linen. Get that from God. He'll give you white clothes that speak of righteousness, innocence regained. White clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that I can see. And God says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and I'll eat with him and he with me. And to him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Wow. Lazarus goes to Abraham and is there in Abraham's bosom. This is a little promise to us that if we will buy from God, not that it costs us anything, he's paid the price, but if we'll receive from God all the riches that he has for us, these spiritual riches, then we overcome. And we don't just get to sit down with Abraham. We get to sit on Jesus' lap on his throne. That's what it says, isn't it? Sit with me on my throne. 
wonderful promises. And so I suppose it comes down to this. What do we want more? What do we want the most? What do you want the most? Do you most want spiritual blessing that lasts forever or material blessing, which is good? Which do you want the most? Do you want spiritual blessing? It will last forever. Do you want material blessing, which is good? Now, almost certainly everyone's instinctive reaction is, but I'd like both, please. Please, can I have both? Why can't I have both? But the way it works is this. If you allow yourself to get absorbed in the spiritual, that is no obstacle whatsoever to God granting you whatever provision of material stuff he wishes. No obstacle at all. You absorb yourself in the spiritual. God will give you whatever he wants to give you. And you know what? He's generous. Amazingly generous. So no worries there. If you absorb yourself in the material stuff and pursue material riches, it has a way of taking you further and further and further away from the spiritual stuff. It deceives you. It may, you when, you've got the, when you've got the spiritual stuff and then God gives you some material stuff, you go, oh, well, hey, look, I got both. Look at that. If you give yourself to the material, you start to forget the value of the spiritual altogether and you don't pursue God and you end up like the Laodiceans thinking, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, I don't need anything. God says, are you naked? And you're pitiful. That's a poor income. So if you want both, the thing to do (laughs) is to pursue the spiritual. And not allow our hearts to get tangled up with the stuff. So I've got a a little challenge this morning. I don't know if you want to like this or not. I thought of it and I thought, well, I think it's brilliant, but I don't like it. Uh, but anyway it's this so um, I had weighing out of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus weighing uh, get ready the word of God get reading it wealth get rid (laughs) now there are some people to whom Jesus said just give it all away everything give it all away got two cloaks give them one away That's not my challenge this morning. I don't feel the measure of confidence that Jesus evidently had when he spoke those words. But this is my challenge to you. I'd like you to think of all the things that you own, all the things that you own, they may be more or less. (laughs) But think of all the things you own. Which one of those things, more than any other, um, do you cherish? Which one of those things that you own has most entangled your heart? Which one of all the things that you own uh, is most likely to distract you from spiritual blessings and from your need for ongoing daily bread from God? Which one? Now, it might be one of the more valuable things that you own. It might be something that doesn't actually, it's not worth anything very much. And it wouldn't be worth anything much to anyone else. But you know that your heart has got entangled with this thing. And my simple challenge to you, rather than 
the confidence of Jesus challenge that he gave to some to give away everything. My challenge to you is just give away that one thing. Just get rid of that one thing, whatever it may be. And you will experience a freedom that will be wonderful. A fresh ability to see spiritually. Having got rid of the one thing in your life that most deceives you about where your riches really lie. Is this making sense? Yeah, maybe too much sense. Uh, if it's something that is valuable, you might want to think carefully about who to give it away to. I had this vision as I was preparing of someone who's here this morning unplugging their new big TV, carrying it down the road and giving it to a neighbor. Saying, I think, I think you, can, you can get distracted by this. <laughs> so I'm not going to get distracted by it anymore. And them thinking you're crazy but loving you. It might be there's just a little bit of jewelry, maybe, that's maybe not worth very much, that someone once gave you, and the sense that it gave you of being loved has eclipsed this, your sense of God's love for you, and it's like, a, it's like a hook in you. You might need to get rid of that. If it's worth something, you might want to give it to someone else. You might want to sell it on eBay and give the money to the poor. I don't know. This is a doable thing. It's possible for us all within the week to be a bit freer in the spirit, all of us to be more clear-sighted about what really matters by letting go of one thing that has become a stumbling block to us. The important thing is not to make ourselves poorer the important thing is to be free of the object's power over us. This is about pure, it's a heart thing. It's not about the money, it's a heart thing. God cares about our hearts and he wants us to live free and able to live more dependent and trusting him. I'm going to invite you all to ask me within the week what it is that I've given away. I think I know what God said, and I've not yet agreed with him. <laughs> no, it's my possession. It's, it's not, anyway, I think I know what he said. Um, so I want to be accountable. And just as with Dave's challenge to us last week, which we all heard, and oh, that's a good story about the burglars, and we like that, but about two people have done anything with it. Uh, let's do something. Let's do, let's let our faith be alive. And making a difference to our lives. Let's not just have a kind of, oh, we're in church, we heard a word, we have lunch. Cycle, cycle, go round. We're religious. No! Let's change. Let's do something. And it will glorify God and it will be an adventure. We always want adventure. Well, here's an opportunity to embark on one. Can we have the band back, please? Who I think might have a song that touches on adventure. And we'll sing it gladly. With the thing we're going to give away in mind.